one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. So you can laugh, I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Owen Murphy and Ken all here in studio, fresh from our trip to watch Barcelona beat Arsenal in the Champions League on Tuesday night. Hello there, Owen. Mm. Hi guys. How you doing? We're all uh, all recovered from Tuesday. Oh yeah. I think when you're lucky enough to see arguably the greatest footballer of all time score two goals at the end of the pitch where you're sitting, yeah, literally right in front of you, you think that would be the most vivid memory you would take away from the night. I think for myself and Murph, it certainly was. We barely mm. stopped talking about it since, mm. especially that first goal. Well, the second was a penalty, but the the first goal when uh, Neymar rolled it across and Suarez. The obvious play was for Suarez was for um, Messi just to slot it home first time. But he just took that little touch, yeah, just to make sure they checked dove to the, the, the wrong side and then slotted it in. But anyway, that's not Ken Early's takeaway memory. You only had eyes for one man, Ken. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about big Olivier, big Olivier from the big man, big man in the flesh mm. is Olivier Giroud, a big slow man. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, that reminds me. Yeah. I, no, so I, I I was amazed by it. Uh, I mean, we were we were both amazed by. I was sitting next to Kieran at the at the match. Um, amazed by what specifically? The, Giroud. Giroud. And what's his, wrong with him? And his pass to no one. Why are you doing that? Like, so we what we couldn't work out is he basically hasn't had a sniff all night. He's got a chance here. Uh, he's he can easily get this ball onto his left foot. He's in the box already. He just needs to get the ball on his left foot and, and shoot. This is professional football can be quite complicated at times. <laughs> you know, you can ask footballers to do quite complicated tasks on the field. But when you're Olivier Giroud and the ball falls to you and your hammer of a left foot, <laughs> you know, this is the one thing that you would think, okay, instinct should surely take over here. That yeah. the only thing you want to do now is to really blast the shite out of this ball. Yeah. That's Just, basically what I'm what I'm looking for here. This is the this is you've been dreaming of this since you were a little boy. You know, the ball drops you on your left foot against Barcelona. You know, this is the moment. Just hammer it. What do you do? You lay the ball off to nobody. There's nobody there. You lay it off. It was so such a forlorn 
Like, what are you doing? I mean, Walcott, he was obviously expecting Walcott to be there. Actually, Walcott had, had taken the inside channel. Which was a very good run. And actually, I think, in fairness to Giroud, if he had played it inside to Walcott running on a full pace, that might have been excusable. The, now, the decision to play it outside whether Walcott was there or not seems Because what's, what, what's, he's just complicating the situation now. It's like the, whoever is going to be running onto that ball, whether it's Walcott or Brady Rain or whoever it is, is going to now be, you know, running at full speed, coming towards the end line, uh, has a lot to really do. Can't shoot, will have to cross Barcelona. It's, it gives them extra time. Just have a go. Just, just shoot. How it's could the, you not do that? It's the area of the field where Olivier Giroud's uh, field of vision should narrow down. Everything else should be excluded except his left foot, the ball, and the left-hand side of the goal as he's looking at it, into which he should try and blast the ball into the top. Oh, I'm part. really looking forward to you two boys as old men and some young grandkids or relatives come and say, did you see Leo Messi actually play football and you went I think yeah, wh- so wh- whatever <laughs> whatever. let me tell you about Olivier Giroud <laughs> yeah, yeah. well I said I said to that that and I said this is this is what I remember in old age I saw Messi score two goals finally because I'd seen Messi play five times in uh, in the flesh I saw him play against South Korea at the World Cup in 2010 against that's not actual Messi that's Argentina Messi that's Argentina Messi Argentina Messi again in Dublin it doesn't count at the Aviva Stadium opening that grand opening that couldn't count less <laughs> Messi walked around for 45 minutes and was substituted. Uh, didn't score. I saw him again against Switzerland in the World Cup. Uh, didn't score. Set up a goal in the last minute for Di Maria. I saw him against Germany in the World Cup. Didn't score, famously, as we as we know. Germany Germany won that one. Uh, and I saw him in the Champions League final for Barcelona against Juventus. Didn't score. Let you down again. So I'm thinking... This is a pretty amazing run, you know, for a guy who scores one to three, one to five goals in pretty much every game. I've now seen him in five times. He hasn't scored. We were talking about this. I would say that if anyone had anyone else in the world had seen Lionel Messi play five times and for him to have not scored in any of those games. There can't be too many of us. Very few. Very few. Maybe some angry Argentinian fans. You know, he doesn't do it. He just doesn't feel it in his heart. No, we're not going to we're not going to go down that route. But uh, so I thought, what's, what are the chances of six? Uh, little chance, it turned out it was six. But you know, Giroud, so I said, I, I will remember this in old age. Whereupon, <laughs> at LTJXX, uh, an angry Arsenal fan and Olivier Giroud admirer, <laughs> guess what? You are already old in the lame way you think. I thought, <laughs> I thought what? So I looked at his, I looked at the feed. And it turned out he was waging a one-man war against the internet to uh, correct everybody who thought that Olivier Giroud <laughs> could have done a bit better. So busy, busy night on Tuesday. Hazard hasn't scored a PL goal all season. Giroud still delivers assists. He has 20 goals this season in all comps. Why don't you grow up and realise that mistakes happen all the time in football for all players? Your foolish comment angers me. <laughs> Giroud's season is much better than your comment. Giroud has scored 20 goals for Arsenal in all comps this season. Become smart. <laughs> oh, become no. smart. Become that's, become smart. That's Tony Robbins tweeting you. Uh, it's at LTJXX. So one, he one follower on Twitter. Look, possibly he, Olivier Giroud. He, he was he was so angry with the way everyone's having a go at Giroud. But the fact is, I mean, why 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 really have a go at Giroud? It's it's not fair. It's like he's not. He's just a normal footballer. You know, he's just a normal footballer. And he's up against guys who are not normal. I mean, the whole thing is just, there's, it's ridiculous. 
the three strikers are not just are not the only abnormal players in the team. I mean, there's Iniesta, Busquets. Uh, I mean, Rakitic was very good in person. In person, in person. <laughs> as though we're walking around the pitch with him, just stroking the ball around midfield. There, I, f- a- I feel I know Ivan Rakitic <laughs> after. Uh, He's a lovely, is a charming little man. Yeah, uh, but you know, they're, they're, you can't do anything. It's unfair to compare someone like Giroud or, or Chamberlain. We were saying in the early podcast, you know, Chamberlain, Mr. Chance, Chamberlain is a decent footballer, but he's just when when you see him up against these guys who are the best in the world, you realise how big that gap is. I mean, Chamberlain is is one of the best people out there at football, but. You know, there's still there's still a pretty big gap. The gap between Oxlade Chamberlain and Messi is about the same as the gap between Owen McDevitt and Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, <laughs> which is unfortunate for all the concerned. Yeah, I mean, which is, Messi. which is not to say that Oxlade Chamberlain isn't isn't a high level isn't a high level player, or indeed Owen McDevitt. Yeah, at a slightly lower level. They, on, so you're saying Oxlade Chamberlain gets unnecessarily annoyed during games of five? Yeah, I didn't see him kicking anyone up the earth, but uh, nevertheless, <laughs> time for Kennedy's report on sport. <laughs> Owen McDevitt is a choleric little man on the football field, isn't he? There's a little what, doubt about that. What, what would you, who would you compare him to? Dennis Wise? No. God, that is a tough question, actually. Lee Boyer? No, I'm trying to think of the player. Well, Johnny Sexton, actually, if you were to run out to all why, sports. Why, thank you. Uh, I would say that his behaviour towards his uh, teammates <laughs> reminds me very much of Johnny Sexton. Yeah. As a player, well, maybe it's uncharitable to suggest. So the FIFA election's on tomorrow, then. Um, yeah, the FIFA election. Where were we? Uh, we're double booked election wise tomorrow. We are. I don't think we have a vote in the FIFA election, as far as I'm aware. So uh, should be okay. No, we don't. I, I think it'll be John Delaney casting a vote on all our behalves. <laughs> uh, uh, and I don't know who he'll go for, but I mean, uh, I I don't know, but maybe he's already declared. Uh, I haven't seen it if he has, but I guess there's Johnny Infantino as the UEFA candidate, and he's a good UEFA man, is John Delaney. So maybe he's he's preparing a. Shake some and surprise for us tomorrow, but uh, should we wait and see? Um, but what's happening? Uh, we kind of know what the winner's going to say because <laughs> because it turns out FIFA have already supplied the answers to any questions that might arise. Uh, so they sent out a messaging toolkit <laughs> to candidates in which candidates are encouraged to say lines like. FIFA remains committed to cooperating with the ongoing investigations by the relevant authorities. This process is essential in restoring the reputation of the organization. By the time of the 2018 FIFA World Cup, we will have established FIFA as a modern, trusted, professional organization that is fit for purpose. Um, so preparation for potential questions. Uh, so you can, Why are we even having an election? <laughs> you can imagine some awful little journalist uh, standing up, introducing himself with his name and organization as if anyone cares. And then saying, do you think this was an open and transparent presidential campaign, given the fact there was no public debate between the candidates? Imagine this little mosquito of a journalist, you know, trying to plunge his, his blood-seeking proboscis into your skin. And you're <laughs> like, and you just say, every candidate had ample opportunity to make public their vision for FIFA's future. And I'm confident that the election was a fair and transparent process. Uh... You can imagine some other horrible little, uh, horrible little journalist getting up and saying, "If, for instance, this is based on a close result, uh, this little muckraker says <laughs> the election shows there was not a strong support for a single candidate. Does this represent a challenge for you taking this role?" And you say, 
Many qualified candidates, all of whom want the best for FIFA, vied for the position of FIFA president. I am honoured to be elected today. Now the election has passed, I look forward to collaborating with my colleagues and working together to help FIFA fulfil its mission to promote and develop the game globally. Oh, this is kind of grim and disgusting. So what if, uh, who, hold on a second. Who actually is writing this then? I mean... FIFA's uh, spin doctors. So why don't we just give them the job? Mm. These spin doctors apparently don't have a huge amount of imagination either. I don't think we're talking exactly world-class mm. scriptwriters. World-class? Mm. Well, the, I mean, the, the purpose of this type of discourse is to be boring and to say nothing. To say nothing while being as boring as possible. Because that's the way that you get everybody to get bored out <laughs> and start thinking about their own stuff. <laughs> you know, oh, they haven't given us any lunch in a while. I mean, that would be a good... That would be a good way to ensure the press conference was quick, just to make sure that the journalists were hungry. There was no food. And then to, to tell them before the press conference that the food will, will be waiting outside. And then... Maybe say, hand them like the menu. Hand them the menu as they're going in. <laughs> yeah. now, obviously, we'll have to wait until after the press conference. <laughs> but if you could just forward on your, your order before we begin the Q&A, and then... Has anybody got any questions? <laughs> uh, I think we have this pretty much covered. What if there's a landslide uh, result? Um, some guy, now this this journalist is actually sitting there, and they've been told not to do this, but he's sitting there eating like uh, an Emmental panini. Ah, oh, proper little toad. Cheating. Scumbag. Yeah, spreading crumbs spreading crumbs over the place. Didn't even see Nicola getting into his laptop, but manages to, to, to swallow enough of it to, to mutter. He says, um, you've been elected, uh, this is... In this instance, there's been a landslide. The winner is standing there having, having recorded 99% of the votes. It's actually a little bit embarrassing. Having, how having recorded 102% of the votes. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. So this guy says, the fact that you have been elected by acclamation confirms that there is no democracy at FIFA. Don't you see the way that they want to have it both ways? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's close... If it's close, then they want to say, oh, there's no mandate. And if it's, and if it's a huge uh, majority, they want to say that it's a totalitarian dictatorship. It's typical. But what you say there is the member associations have decided, and as such, we need to respect their decision. Um, what if, you know, there's no, uh, what about the powers of the president are too extensive? FIFA requires greater separation of powers. There is a separation of powers. The president's role will be strategic, ambassadorial, and no longer executive. Now, that actually is an interesting answer. Mm. No longer executive hmm. for the FIFA president. That's an interesting. That's a, a reimagining of the role. What do, what do they mean by that? No, what do they mean by no well, no, no longer executive uh, would suggest that the the uh, you know strategic ambassador and no longer executive would suggest that it's more like an Irish president than an American yeah. president. You know um, that 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 he's a guy who he, who you know chairs blue sky thinking meetings, uh, shows up around the world when people people need to have photos with the FIFA president, but doesn't actually decide things or make policy in his own office, off his own bat, uh, which, is a, which is a change. Not that Sepp Blatter was, you know, the most um, dynamic policymaker. He wasn't. He just kind of sat there not really doing a whole lot. But, you know, he had the scope, if he wanted, to, to, to create his own initiatives. Um, Okay, maybe there is a bit of scope for that, but it sounds as though the, the president is a reduced role now, or at least that's the way uh, FIFA spin doctors envisage it being. Um, yeah, so that's that's, that, uh, that's some of the things you might hear. He, they have also apparently requested uh, all those victory speeches from the candidates so they can have a look over them. 
uh, each candidate, you know, on, on the basis that they might win, has been asked to provide their speech to FIFA so they can just look over and make sure they're saying all the right things. Is the shadow of Blatter hanging over? Well, Blatter has been doing a few interviews. I mean, all Blatter's interviews are kind of the same. He's just sort of just the same stuff, you know. He, he's got a few folksy mountain metaphors. He talks about himself. I'm like a, a ripe cheese, or, you know, I am like a, a mountain goat. You know, this kind of stuff. Uh, he's talking to the Keep, though. The Keep, obviously, being from France, are interested in a certain former... Uh, a uh, friend turned enemy of, of Blatter, uh, who also, like him, has been banned from football. That's Michel Platini. Um, and uh, they say, uh, well, essentially Blatter answers a couple of questions about him, but he's, but he, he this is his big team. His big team is, this is all a stitch up. It's all because of the Americans. And the reason is that uh, they're, they're sore that they didn't get the World Cup. He says, if we voted as planned for the United States, the Americans would have had no reason to attack FIFA because they would have had their World Cup. I would have finished the last four years of my mandate peacefully. So uh, he he consistently says that. Whether it's true, I don't know. I don't. I'm I'm not I'm not 100 convinced. Uh, I'm not 100 convinced it's true. I think it's possible that the investigation could have happened anyway. Um, because if the Americans had got the World Cup, what, what would have been to stop them investigating FIFA? Are FIFA going to take it off them then? Oh, you're investigating us. We're going to take we're going to take the World Cup off you and give it to Qatar. I'm not sure. No. I don't I don't know if that if that necessarily follows. I mean, for Blatter, the way that he thinks about the world, everything is of course politically motivated. You know, there's no there's no question, but that everything that happens has a true pur- has stated purpose and a true purpose, and they're not necessarily the same purpose. Yeah, I mean, the, the way he and FIFA railed against the Sunday Times and the British reporting mm. of various scandals it essentially seems like the entire of this country is against us. It's almost as though David Cameron himself kind of sent the edict down to the uh, press to go after yeah. the, this guy and this organisation. In a meeting like in Kingsman or something, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's not as though there's never been a politically motivated uh, investigation in the history of America. <laughs> That's definitely not true either. But uh, but he talks about Platini. He says, I still don't know why he absolutely wanted me to withdraw from the elections. I asked him, but he didn't respond. He said to my brother, tell him not to go or else he'll finish in prison. Was he aware that something was going to happen afterwards? History will tell one day. At a certain point, he became a bit nasty. He didn't want me to be there any longer. In fact, he was struggling against himself because he should have had the courage to present for election in May 2015. He didn't. Michel was a better footballer than a politician. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> hurts a little bit, but uh, definitely true. I mean, outstanding footballer, mediocre politician. He was a lot better as a footballer than a politician. I mean, you know, even if they were still friends, Blatter could probably have got away with that one. Daniel Sturridge? Yeah, Daniel Sturridge did a press conference. Uh, Liverpool are playing Augsburg in the Europa League today. And Sturridge did a press conference with Klopp. And he doesn't often do these. I mean, he's not usually in the squad. Uh, and he doesn't often do the press. But maybe he felt he needed to address a few issues that, have, that had sprung up. Because obviously, over this long period of his, uh, you know, I mean, when was the last? The last time he had a semi-decent run of games is nearly a year ago now. And every, you know, it's it's more the kind of chronic nature of it at this stage. It's it's like it's not a case of oh Sturridge gets injured and then he gets fit. It's like he's not fit 
and he's already injured again. You know, he's trying to get fit and then, oh, he's broken down in, in training. And, you know, a lot of people have, have had a lot to say about it. Stephen Gerrard had a, had a lot to say about it in his book. I mean, it's a case of, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily going to really slam a player who's still at the club that you've just left, that you were the captain of, you know, who was actually, who was when, when he played, one of the best players. But he did put in enough in that book to make it obvious what he thought about Daniel Sturridge's injuries, um, which is that they were in his head. To a large extent, in his head, uh, you know, he he talks about this this game they played against Manchester United, where the physio actually asked Gerard, "Can you please have a word with him?" Because he's got like he says he got something wrong with his tie. We've we've looked at it. We don't really think it's that big a deal, but he's he's kind of like Gerard oh. said that in the book. Yeah, so Gerard goes going pretty far. Gerard goes for the walk with with Sturridge before the um, before the game. Goes for a walk the morning of the game. Oh, you know, Daniel, listen, you know, we you know how, how badly we need you. You know that we really, uh, you're such an important player for us. Do you not think you could maybe just give it a go? You could always come off. You could come off after a few minutes, you know. Everyone will just appreciate the fact that you've given it a shot. And uh, eventually talk Sturridge into it. Sturridge played, scored, played the whole game. Uh, Liverpool won the game, 1-0. And, you know, so Gerard was kind of, Gerard sort of leaves it there. But he also says, you know, Luis Suarez, I saw him go into a treatment room twice. One of those times was to get a bag of ice. Uh, he just didn't really care about that uh, obviously he would get injured the same as everyone else but he would just ignore the fact that he was injured so uh, sometimes you got to do that so so the suspicion that a lot of people have at this stage is that Sturge didn't really have that kind of appetite uh, Chris Sutton once <laughs> quoted to him uh, said that he had a, a heart said players would say he has a heart the size of a pea <laughs> just, which is uh, harsh enough uh, but Sturge just says it's important to worry about the present of course, it's been difficult as opposed to the past and the future. Of course, it's been a difficult time being injured, but it's a part of football and I'm looking forward to the future, of course, at Liverpool. It's really not much to stress or worry about. I've been relaxed the whole time. Um, he says... That's partly the problem, I think, that people have with him. That he seems it, a little he, too relaxed. But he's a bit too relaxed about missing vast swathes of his career through phantom injuries. Well, he, I suppose he would dispute that the idea that they're fandom. taking it on the chin isn't actually what people want to see. People want to see him raging against this. Yeah, or or well, well, look, this is the point. He says uh, that he is he is good. I'm not at home chilling when I'm injured. I'm not I'm not out with friends living life to the full. I'm not happy. I'm sitting in the stands, devastated, or watching my teammates play. It hurts hearing second and third hand what people say. I'd say, like Stephen Gerrard, for instance, <laughs> which is first hand. He says, I'd say a lot of things that are said aren't the truth. All I want to do is help this team have success. That's the most important thing. Nothing matters. But there was some, you, you see, because it's, it's kind of an ongoing, mysterious situation, people suggest, you know, it's a kind of vacuum of information into which a kind of conspiracy or rumor quickly, you know, spreads and sort of thrives. So, for instance, people are even suggesting there was some religious basis for the fact that he, because Sturridge is one of those openly religious Athletes, you know, if you look at his um, social media, or whatever, he frequently makes reference to his, uh, you know, and you can see, you know, he, 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 you can see him pointing to the heavens on the field and so on, which okay, doesn't always mean that you're religious. But he says, uh, yeah, it's surprising to hear that, to be honest. I didn't know religion had anything to do with football. I didn't. Uh, as a child, you don't think of those things. To say a player doesn't want to play is the biggest disrespect ever to any footballer. It's very disappointing whoever's saying it. Uh, but I, I says, don't understand the link there. Sorry, what, what are people there saying? Is no, there is no link. But what, what, why are people bringing religion into his injuries? Because, as I said, it's like a... Um, it's, it's because 
people don't know for sure. It's a kind of un space of uncertainty which lends itself to speculation. You know, and, and someone comes up with some idea, oh, you know, it's because, you know, he can't play on Sundays or whatever. Right, okay. <laughs> or uh, he can't play on Saturdays or, you know, he, I, I don't even... Some Wednesdays are out. Yeah, I don't quite buy that, uh, buy that argument to some uh, He did say, I'm blessed by God. I have no stresses. I'm a happy guy. I've come a long way from Hockley in Birmingham and my roots are Jamaican. I'm blessed. I'm good. So, yeah, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's back. Louis Van Hal hanging on. Uh, Louis Van Hal talking a bit about what he wants to see from Manchester United against Midtjylland, whose captain tweeted a picture of a bus, uh, of their bus saying, the bus is parked. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, criticism can influence players. This is Van Hal now. Uh, Midtjylland has a good organisation, very detailed. They play with diagonal pressing. I do that also with my team. Not many teams are doing that. And when I see the data of Midtjylland, they've always won against English opponents. I think they've only played Southampton, though. I mean... Maybe I'm missing one. They, they obviously beat Southampton earlier in the season. Um, but uh, I don't know what he says. We have to keep the ball better. We have to move the ball quicker. That's always what we have to do. Desire. It's a great word. I often use the word horny with my players. So uh, Van Hal wants the team to I don't know if you saw more. the footage of this, but he turns around to... He says that, then he turns awkwardly to... Well, he wasn't awkward. He, he, he turns almost triumphantly, actually, to Juan Mata sitting beside him. And Mata's just smiling there, looking politely. And Van Hal says, isn't, isn't this true? And Mata smi smiles vacantly for a couple of seconds. And then really, you, could, you can see him wishing this moment would end pretty soon. <laughs> and, imme and immediately thinking, what a lad's going to say when I get back into the train? How did I have to be the one stuck here, listen to this guy make the... Um, like this weird point. There, there is quite a lot of that sort of stuff about Lee Van Hal, though, isn't there? Like his, um, his penis comes up a lot. <laughs> I mean, you know, Van, remember Ian Robin? In conversation. I know, yeah, get, get it that. together. Come on. But remember Ian Robin during the World Cup? Oh, he's got a, a golden dick. That was what Robin what? said. Robin said that. Yeah, it's true. He's got a golden dick. Um, there was the whole thing with... Uh, it's one step up from Golden Balls, Murph, by the way. Yeah. With, with Luca Tony. That's an Austin Powers movie, isn't it? <laughs> he was Dutch as well, that guy. Luca Tony reveals the uh, reveal the, the thing that he did at Barn, you know, uh, essentially, I, know, I need you to show some balls. And then dropped his pants and, like, presented his balls to the team. You know, like these ones. <laughs> and, you understand uh, what I'm talking about? You know. Just the, if, in case there's any sort of a language barrier there. Yeah, just like, like these. Pointing to his balls. Uh, Luca Tony was, was scandalized. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. Uh, I guess it got, must have got the message through. Apparently it led to an, uh, an upturn in form. Mm. So uh, that's good, it for, for Barn. Kennedy's report on sport. FIFA made a movie recently. Did uh, they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. God, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Sad Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. We were not too explosive. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what I do. And that was it. We were not too explosive. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds, and I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. 
when I went in and told them how I felt about them, yeah. and there were some expletive used, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, I think. And you've used the figure there. Well done to you. All right, Gabriele Mercati is in Zurich today, ahead of tomorrow's election of a new FIFA president to succeed Sepp Blatter. Uh, Gabriele, is there a sense of excitement building there in Zurich about a new transparent age of football governance? <laughs> well, uh, I think a sense of excitement, uh, I'd love to tell you, that is palpable on the city and the street corners, and everybody's chattering about that, but they're not. It's Zurich. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of concerned people among, uh, you know, in the FIFA Congress, and there's a lot of uh, pretty tightly wound people um, among sort of the, the whole cloud of consultants and, and, and hangers-on that, you know, spends their time in uh, in the various Confederation hotels. Uh, this is crunch time. This is where you try to persuade the, uh, the undecided or, uh, or indeed those who've already decided, you try to convince them that there's a better way. Yeah, well, if there's that much uncertainty and that much angst amongst the various teams supporting their candidates there, that would imply that it's a fairly open race. Is, is that the case? That there's nothing really, <laughs> there's no foregone conclusion tomorrow? I don't think it's a foregone conclusion at all. But the reality is, you know, you, you can only go by what what people say. Um, certainly, and people spin all the time. One thing that I think is interesting is, uh, it's kind of like a FIFA truism that there's a certain proportion of voters who who simply want to vote for whoever is going to win. Um, and so it's really important to give off the impression that, you know, you've supported the winner. Um, that's why, incidentally, you know, the, the tradition in the past, although they've banned it now, is to go and uh, take a photograph of your ballot to show that, look, Mr. New President, you know, I've been with you all along. Um the although now you can't do that anymore, so that might explain why, for example, Sheikh Salman he kind of stopped campaigning like ten days ago and just kind of retired to a hotel in Zurich, saying, "Oh well, I've got this wrapped up," because he wanted to give off his impression of strength. Whereas, you know, the other front runner, Johnny Infantino, was was absolutely crisscrossing the globe, uh, trying to win support. How does the lobbying actually work then? Do they Evidently, I mean, there still seems to be a fair amount of it going on over there. But, but I mean, how long have, the, have these guys been sort of on the campaign trail for the last, for the last few months? Certainly, Fantino has. I mean, I, I spoke to one of his advisors today, and uh, and he said that basically he's you know he he's kind of like a, a wreck, um, surviving on sort of coffee and, and and Red Bull. And in his case, it's made worse by the fact that he doesn't enjoy flying, so he can't sleep on airplanes. Um, but yeah, basically they go around and, you know, they say, look, if, if I'm elected, we're going to do this and that. And, you know, you don't, you, you know, they try to persuade them because what, what happens is you might've heard about how, you know, UEFA and South America have endorsed Infantino and, um, Africa and Asia have, have endorsed Sheikh Salman. Well, those are just kind of the confederation endorsements. So that's kind of the executive committee of the confederation says, all right, everybody, we think you should vote for this guy. But that doesn't mean you have to vote for him. So, for example, it's pretty much nailed on that, you know, Russia will not vote for Infantino uh, in Europe. Um, so, so there's still wiggle room. Um, there, there are still candidates who, who might, you know, who can be persuaded. Uh, the, the South Sudan F.A., uh, one of the newest FAs, 
they came out and they said that they supported Infantino, uh, while CAF is supporting Africa. Oh, sorry, obviously CAF supports Africa, while CAF is supporting Salman. Uh, they came out, they actually issued a statement, but then they had to retract the statement at CAF surging because, uh, you know, saying, well, no, but, you know, we, we, we've thought about it and we, we, you know, we like both candidates, but we're going to stick for African unity, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's, that's all posturing. But then once they get into the, into the ballot booth, you know, you, you, they're free to do as they choose. Cabrera, did you say that Infantino doesn't like flying? It's remarkable. Well, that, I, I, uh, I think that could be a slight issue if he's going to be the FIFA president. <laughs> no, we're, we're not talking Dennis Bergkamp here. Yeah. But he's not one of those people, uh, and this is mentioned in, in the New York Times profile of him, he's not one of those people who kind of, you know, gets on the plane and kind of falls asleep on command and has, you know, no sense of time zones. Set uh, Blatter is what you're talking about there. Set Blatter master exactly. Yeah. He's not. He's not. He's not Set Blatter in that way. So, for example, last week he flew to uh, South Africa to uh, to go to Robben Island with with Tokyo Sekwale, who, who of course is is one of the other rival candidates, which I thought was kind of curious. Um, but you know, he literally like sort of got off the plane, went to Robben Island, and then got back on the plane for a 13 hour flight back to Europe. Mm. I mean, for for decades, you know, Blatter dominated this organization before him, Joao Avalanche, um, based on, uh, I, su- I, su- I suppose, democratic arithmetic, uh, which which dictated that if Africa and Asia and South America were behind them, then uh, they were going to get elected. Is there any reason to believe that that is uh, that is changing now, or or do you think Sheikh Salman will be able to inherit that kind of from Blatter? Because it seems. Uh, you know, when I look at the odds for this, and I know bookies' odds aren't necessarily always a reliable guide, uh, as reliable on politics as they are on on, uh, on sports, but uh, Sheikh Salman is uh, heavy odds-on favorite. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple things to, to, to say to that. Um, first of all, you know, the support of Africa and Asia certainly hasn't been automatic in the past. I mean, Issa Hayatu is the head of the uh, of CAF, uh, the Asian Confederation. He stood against Blatter in, in 2002, as, as you recall. Um, but I don't think that they they block vote the way they did in the past. Um, you know, two of the confederations, CONCACAF and Oceania, uh, have actually come out and said, you know, we want people to vote for whoever whoever they want to. Um, you don't have that that figure like Jack Warner with his Caribbean football union, which is kind of like a confederation within a confederation, you know, where they controlled 35 votes. And, you know, if Jack said jump, they would say how high. And it kind of helped them get a lot of stuff that they needed to run their FAs uh, and maybe even lined some people's pockets. Um, uh, it, you know, that kind of business, I think, is largely, is largely out the window. Um, I'm not saying that everybody's honest and does what's best. No, they still serve their own interests first, probably, and then their FA's interests second, and then their country's interests third, and then football's interests fourth. I mean, I think that's kind of the hierarchy for for a lot of these guys. Um, but you know that that formula, I think, is, as, as I said, has changed. I actually on, on the flight over, I met, I, I was on the plane with um, Secretary General. Of the of the Bermuda FA, now he's the guy who kind of helped bring down Warner, because he's the guy who actually physically you remember the photograph of the uh, the forty thousand dollars in cash, 
he's the guy who found it in his hotel room and took a picture of it. And, uh, and ultimately that, that brought down, that brought down Warner. Um, so, you know, you're thankful that there are people, people like that. And, you know, and he said that, you know, hopefully the mood is different among, uh, among a lot of people that, you know, the, the, the old sort of naked transaction, cash transaction politics are, are gone. Well, I wonder what you think is really at stake here, uh, Gabriela, because there was this, I mean, all these convulsions last year in FIFA, you know, Blatter eventually fell uh, fell over all this, and everybody, you know, was the the sort of state in which FIFA had fallen into became this, you know, global issue and the need for change. Everyone was talking about it, and then, the, you know, when you sort of see the list of candidates, there isn't really. I don't get the sense when I when I look at this list of candidates that there's a real potential for revolution there no matter what the outcome of this election tomorrow. I mean, do you think, you know, do you think there really is anything at stake? Is this just going to be kind of a continuation of FIFA as it's always been? No, look, there's a couple things to say here. First and foremost, and it does kind of annoy me as somebody who's actually spent time on this, there's a basic knee-jerk reaction, which is, oh, they're all corrupt. They'll always be corrupt, right? And that's kind of I mean, a lot of people generally go out and feel that way about transnational institutions anyway, right? None of us go around saying, you know, yeah, the IMF is great, or, or the, you know, the European Union is fantastic, or, or you probably feel, most of us probably feel that same way about our own government, right? Yeah, well, often, oftentimes, oftentimes people are right on all accounts, though. Right, but it's a question, it's a question of degree. Um, and and what, what gets me is people are like, they need an outsider to run it. You know what? I, an outsider, I think, would actually be a really, really bad thing. And the reason is the same reason that, you know, if you were to, if you were to elect the smart, whoever, the, whoever you think the smartest, cleverest man in Ireland is, and I assume it's probably not a, an Irish politician, if you were to make him, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, so I'll just say prime minister, uh, tomorrow, he would still have to deal with, with, with parliament. He'd still have to deal with, with ministers. We're not electing a dictator here. We're, we're electing a president who's going to have to rely on the support of either the executive committee or the, the executive or whatever body replaces it. Um, even Blatcher, who was probably as powerful as anybody, you know, in recent years, he wasn't om- omnipotent. He, he had to give in. Uh, he didn't get his way on, on, on a whole bunch of things from, you know, making women footballers wear skimpy uniforms, which, as you know, he wanted to do to, to the, to the FIFA Club World Championship turning into a rival of the Champions League, to, 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 the 2020, to the 2022 being held in the U.S. You need, and, and he was a savvy politician, you need somebody who can go and, because it's a democracy, if we're going to continue running it like a democracy and not simply like a business, then we, you can't just have a top-down guy. So you need somebody who can go and, and navigate that. And ideally, it's somebody who's, who's honest and transparent. I think one of the keys is going to be the, the reform package, which I know we can all groan and be cynical about it. Um, but tomorrow morning, they're going to be asked to, to vote on a reform package, which, you know, I think if, if, if it's applied and it's seriously applied, I think it's going to help break down a lot of the kind of business as usual that we've had in the past um, in terms of transparency, accountability, term limits and, and whatnot. Um, that'll be a first step. And then you hope that, you know, you bring – you bring somebody, you know, somebody in who, who, it's not so much about the, who's not just honest himself, but won't won't tolerate dishonesty from others. 
because I think that was kind of the, the, the heart of the problem uh, at, at FIFA. Um, and I think that's what you can, you know, I think that's what you can realistically hope for in, in this election. All right, get ready. Enjoy it tomorrow. Thanks a million. My pleasure, guys. Oh, i got to say, I like Gab's idea of Ireland's smartest man taking over his Taoiseach. Who Obie. is? Who is Ireland's smartest man? Um, Brian Cody. <laughs> Brian Cody. Imagine Brian Cody is, is, certainly, is certainly a smart man. I mean, yeah. Imagine Brian Cody running the country. I've nar- actually, I've narrowed it down to three in my head. Go on. Uh, Jim Gavin, Brian Cody, or Declan Kidney. All Who would you coaches. vote for? Who would you vote for if... Well, on, I mean, see, this is it. This is why... My snobbish attitudes towards sport, yeah. Precisely. What, what are you talking about here? Leadership of men? Tactical noose? I mean, sports is the ideal breeding ground for the future leaders of the nation. Well, of course, so, Andy Kenny is a of course. footballer of renown. Hammer yeah, of a left foot. Not a manager, though. No. No, he never really managed at the highest level. No leadership skills. No. So, <laughs> On the field, so if, they weren't in evidence. If the, uh, the choice you had tomorrow was the Brian Cody party. Yeah. I'd, I'd be I'd be worried about the Brian Cody party. I mean, good for Ian Road Aaron. Uh, <laughs> I think we'd have some very punctual arrivals and yeah. departures. But uh, I would I would go for Jim Gavin out of those. What was the third? Declan yeah. Kidney. Declan Kidney. Yeah, I'd go for Jim Gavin. There, you know? It doesn't strike me that any. I mean, you haven't exactly picked any manager who's got an obvious what joie, you mean joie de vivre. There, Politician. Mark. Politician. Oh. There, three very, I would say. Guardians of the state. I mean, if you want a song and dance routine, you can go over to America, you can vote in the Republican Party. <laughs> there's, oh, no, there's a guy over there I think I'm talking, stirring it up, all right? I'm talking about, a, yeah. you know, just a steady guardian of the state. Okay, a man who that. will pass on the country, without doubt, in a better condition than that in which he found it. <laughs> on it, yeah. Uh, at the end, not of his term, but of his life. I could I could imagine him. Uh, holding, <laughs> you think it's a, it's a not, life term for Brian Cody? I find yeah. it more difficult to imagine him relinquishing <laughs> power than, than to take it. Who do Listen, you think? If, I, if I'm happy to keep doing, if I'm happy to keep doing the job, I'll keep doing the job. And if everyone is happy to ha- have me keep doing the job, then I'll continue to do the job. <laughs> As Brian Cody says every November. <laughs> what about you? Who do you think is the smartest man in Ireland? Yeah, I don't really have one. I haven't had a chance to think about it. Okay. Do you have an answer? No. No. Oh. No, not at all. I was just wondering. Uh, idly wondering idly your impression. Well, like, uh, no, well, no, the, the idle speculation on this matter is probably close to. Antonio Conte could be close to becoming the new Chelsea manager for Ports in the last couple of days, or to be believed. We're joined by Terry Daly, who's based in Italy. We've spoken to Terry on the show before. Uh, just, I suppose an obvious question, Terry. Would this be a good appointment for Chelsea? Um, yes, in the sense that he's obviously a very good manager. Um, a winning manager, a manager with an incredibly driven manager. Um, so, yeah, in terms of actual on-pitch performance and the way he sort of galvanises teams and stuff, then, yeah, he would be, um, he should be at least a very good appointment. He's definitely a very talented man. I mean, the only problem I would possibly see with appointing someone like Antonio Conte to Chelsea is that he's extremely volatile, um, just like... Jose Mourinho was. I mean, if you if you want to have a sort of period of calm after that sort of fairly mad last uh, first six months of the last of this season, um, I'm not entirely sure you want to be going for someone like Conte. You've got to bear in mind that about two years ago, when he was still in charge of Juventus, I think it was 2012. He, for instance, just to give you an idea of how volatile he is, after not being given an injury time penalty, he rushed onto the pitch and basically attacked the referee. And you know, was given a two match ban for uh, insulting officials after the match. He's 
he's given a series of interviews when he was in charge of Juventus, basically suggesting that there was some sort of conspiracy theory against the club. Who does that remind you of? Yeah, yeah um, I mean, Roman Abramovich obviously likes these <clears throat> kinds of guys, given that the other guy he seemed to be considering was Diego Simeone, who, who ran onto yeah. the field of the Champions League final and tried to kill the referee. It's a prerequisite now <laughs> of the job. Um, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it's hard to say what Abramovich wants because no one ever really manages to ever talk to him. So it's, it's kind of difficult to put words into his mouth. I mean, but yeah, I think in going for Conte, maybe they're looking to try and get another manager who can sort of galvanise the fan base in a similar way to Mourinho. But, um, but it's hard to say. I mean, it, on a, like I said before, on a purely footballing standpoint, he's a perfectly decent appointment. He's, he's done, he's won three, he won three straight league titles with Juventus. He went 49 games unbeaten while he was there. His Italy team qualified with a game to spare for the European Championships. They topped the group on, they had 24 points from 30 games. You'd have to expect them to qualify from the group as well, which obviously Ireland are in as well. In, in Euro 2016, so I mean, he's obviously a good appointment as a manager. But I mean, as as uh, as someone who followed him quite closely while he was at Juventus, and is, if I may say, on on air a Chelsea fan, I would hesitate possibly before hiring him, just because he could cause extra, you know, more controversy when really what Chelsea needs is is a, is a sort of steady hand, sort of calm the club down a little bit. I mean, the last. The, last nine months or so have been absolutely insane um, and I don't think anyone any Chelsea fan in particular really wants to have a repeat of that I think they I think they probably want to be you know in have someone in charge who who could take control of the club in the same way as say Carlo Ancelotti did when he arrived when he was very dignified he won things his team played very good football and he caused the minimum amount of contro uh, contro uh, controversy possible I think that's probably what uh, any kind of Chelsea, any Chelsea fan would want really, rather than necessarily someone like Conte, who who can fly off the handle at any moment, is very volatile, is um, has a bit of a persecution complex as well, which is incredibly similar to Mourinho in that way. I mean, I would be very hesitant before hiring someone like him personally. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, there is something I like about him, but I mean, when you talk about him being volatile, I've, there's lots of footage of him ranting and raving, whether at, at yeah. players. Um, there's a, a very, very famous press conference that he did, which is among the most spectacular um, demonstrations of the emotion of scorn that I've ever seen, I think, from anybody. <laughs> Just the, the anger and rage. But as far as I recall, the, the subject that day was his imminent ban for match-fixing, which is a bit of a blot on his copybook. Like, I mean, what, what, what exactly is the, is the latest? Because in another way, in Italy... You can get charged with something, and then it seems like over a period of years, you end up just not being charged with anything anymore. What? what? Everything, everything basically melts away in, in in the sort of tunnel of time that is the uh, the Italian judicial system. Right. I'll give you a basic basic idea of what happened. In it was 2012. Conte was banned by the football authorities for 10 months for not for match fixing. He was never accused of actually organising any match fixes. He was. He was basically found guilty of not reporting an instance, a couple of instances of match fixing by his players at Siena when he could have done. That's what he was found guilty of. He was given 10 months, uh, he was banned for 10 months for that. Then he was, that on appeal was reduced to four months. He maintained his innocence at the time. Um, and afterwards, he was very, very, very insistent on saying that he, you know, this has got nothing to do with it. And there, and there were some fairly 
kind of dodgy things about the conviction as well. If you look at the person, I can't remember the name of the person who was the key witness, who was a player at CN at the time, who... It was a pretty untrustworthy. Uh, Kenobio, I think, was his name. Was yeah, he, he was. He was a pretty untrustworthy character, anyway. Um, so they basically based his his evidence, the evidence on on someone who who had previously admitted lying. So I mean, he had he had reason to be upset at the conviction of that. However, he's been, but beyond. But after after the uh, the football authorities um, uh, found him guilty, there's there's a criminal proceeding which is still ongoing, um, in which there's well over a hundred people involved. Um, he's accused of, again, the same thing. It's a, it's a version of sporting fraud, but it isn't, again, it's not that he fixed the match. It's that he didn't report an incidence of match fixing that he knew about. It's, um, it's a kind of vagary of the Italian system where you are supposed to report crimes if you know they're happening. Um, it's a legal obligation. Um, so he's involved in that as well. It's a very long-winding trial. He's currently looking to try and get that fast-tracked, his, um, his particular part of the trial fast track because obviously with the European Championships coming up he can't be you know being called to court you know to give evidence or to talk to investigators and stuff you know so they're trying to there's a hearing I think on the 7th of March um, in which he will try to get this fast track process through and then after that we'll see what happens but um, I think it would be um, it's it's definitely not a case of Antonio Conte match fixer let's put it that way yeah. he, he his his role in it it's it's still kind of fairly murky. I mean, if anything, he was too loyal to his own players. Yeah, if you like, and also his coaching stuff. His coaches. I mean, his 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 uh, deputy coach as well was also banned for eight months. You know, there was definitely something going on there. But this is one of the things that happens in Italy a lot: is that basically matches at the end of a season. Yeah. I mean, at the point at the point these matches were supposedly fixed. Um, allegedly fixed for other. Um, Siena had already been promoted to Serie A. I mean, he'd got sent Siena promoted to Serie A. Um, and at that stage of the season when lots of matches don't really mean anything, there is, there's always been a tradition of clubs playing out pointless draws. You know, it's not like you would see maybe in the UK, when, in, in England and Scotland and probably in Ireland as well, where you see teams that have absolutely nothing to play for going at it hammer and tongs, kicking lumps out of each other. Um, there's always been much more of a, well, you know, a draw does, you know, a draw is good for both of us, so why don't we just play out a draw? Yeah. Um, which is a kind of different thing from... You know, deliberately losing six nil, or you know, or deliberately throwing a cup game, or something more important like that. There is definitely a sort of um, a different take to it. It's a cultural thing that is very, very hard to um, to unpick, and it would be very, very hard to ever get rid of because that's just how uh, people feel here. You know, why inflict a defeat on someone when you don't need to? Yeah. Basically, yeah. Terry Daly, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mill. Okay. Uh, I got to say, I find it pretty funny and quite telling, maybe that. The FA, Harry, Harry Redknapp couldn't get a job despite never being convicted of anything uh, with the FA again. And maybe even more to the point, Brian Clough never became the England manager despite being by a mile the best manager in the country because of a vague sense of unease that he put a few too many noses out of joints. Yet Antonio Conte can be accused of sporting fraud uh-huh. and just sail on into the Italy job. No bother at all. Um, yeah. That's the way. That's the <laughs> Slightly way it different is. outlooks. Well, it's but it's a, it's a real tension, isn't it? It's a, it's a tension between. So what? You've got wind of a possible match fixing uh, situation going on with your players. You're supposed to go to the beaks and alert them. This is what the law says. Now it's obviously it's obvious why the law says that, and it's also obvious that most people break that law mm-hmm. whenever they hear about any crime 
that's about to be committed by people that they know. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know if that's exclusive to Italy. <laughs> um, but yeah, he is... Uh, what about the idea that he's too volatile, that he's going to be as nuts as Jose Mourinho is, and that's not good for the club? Well, I don't think, I don't think Abramovich really cares. It's not as though he's going to be ranting and raving at Roman Abramovich, is it? I bet, he's, I bet he'll be as polite as anything if Abramovich is ever coming into the room. You know, uh, it's probably just um, some of the players that are going to have to, you know, Eden Hazard. I do, I do want to see, I'd like to see that relationship at least have to happen for a season, uh, Antonio Conte and Eden Hazard. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it. I mean, it should be good for, for us, if not necessarily for Eden Hazard. It's Thursday. You wanted to mention Jerome Boateng's before we wrap up? Well, yeah, there, was a, there was, um, was a couple of pieces of American journalism. Um, I suppose Jerome Boateng is more relevant uh, to us here, Ron. It's one of these things on, you know, the Players' Tribune. Yep. Um, who was it? Derek Jeter, was it? Uh, who was a player of the... Ooh, A-Rod, no. Yeah, Derek Jeter. Yeah, Derek right, Jeter. Yes, of course, yeah. Set up this thing, which was going to like... Uh, Along with like Blake Griffin and a couple of these other hard-hitting... scum journalists yeah. from earlier in the show out of the equation altogether. Yeah, just rub those guys out. Uh, and instead, let's just have like the player speaking directly to the fan as though like they were pressed together and the knowledge of what it's like to be an awesome sports guy was just passing directly through the skin of the player into the fan like a Vulcan mind meld yeah and you don't you don't have some some tricksy little you know some deceitful dishonest uh money grubbing you know i, I don't even want to go there because it's, it's a family it's a family podcast, you know what I mean? You don't have that. Yes, families around Ireland are scum sitting around off, listening scum to Scum off podcast. the street or yeah. the newsroom or whatever. Uh, that kind of scum, uh, you take them out of the equation. So instead, you, you just ask Jerome Boateng to write a piece for you about what it, what's it like to be a defender. And uh, Jerome Boateng, it turns out, is a, is a pretty, pretty bloody good sports writer. Want to know the best way to figure out what a defender does? Writes Jerome Boateng. That's how he opens. First, become a striker. Seriously. At least that's the method that worked out best for me. Let's call it a happy accident. Describes how he used to play in the left wing. But then, uh, what happened? Our entire defensive line was out with, in with injuries. Okay, Jerome, you're playing defense, my coach said. Sure, why not? I've been playing offense since I was six years old. But so you're speaking it, in an American accent, Jerome Botek is a German. So it was like having the top secret plans. The codes. I had infiltrated the mainframe. I knew where the strikers wanted to go, what they wanted to do, and how they were going to do it. Because I was one of them. That experience still serves as the foundation. So that he goes on. He's, he's, a, he's a bloody good wordsmith. Um, I can't help but feel, but the, there's a little element of scum <laughs> in that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing about this, this site. Why are they pretending that this ghostwriter doesn't exist? It's so annoying. Why are they just cutting this guy out? It's a it's it's a lie. It's bullshit. Are we? Is this supposed to be Jerome Boateng's personal essay? I've heard. Come the, on. Yeah, I've heard at the Hang Up and Listen Slate's Hang Up and Listen podcast in the US talk about this, and they find it quite amusing. These titles they just bestow upon themselves. You know, there's it's the old, it's like the editor in chief type stuff and and all the rest of it. When you know you might be dubious as to exactly how much editing Derek Jeter might be doing, for example. Like why why what would be the problem? with having the name of this poor drone who labored to create this crafted Jerome Boateng essay, 
just there in small writing somewhere next to it. What would be wrong with acknowledging his humanity? Well, his, a lot of his or her a lot of humanity and existence. A lot of sports autobiographies don't have the ghostwriters named. It's just a lot of the ghostwriter canons we've heard a lot about pretty much every December when people talk about sports books. Well, to be honest, I don't really, I don't really see the advantage of this. Uh, it seems like an attempt to pull the wool over the eyes of supporters. Let's just pretend this person doesn't exist. Let's pretend Jerome Boateng is, is writing this. By the way, nothing in this essay about Jerome Boateng getting posterized by Lionel Messi. <laughs> I would have liked to hear him talk about, what's it like to be a defender and know that you've just been beaten all ends up and are falling over the wrong direction like a tree that's been chopped down in a stadium full of 80,000 people with 100 million people watching on TV. What is that like? That's something Jerome Boateng can tell me that I don't know. I don't know the answer to exactly what that feels like. And I wish he'd gone there. You know, if only there had been a ghostwriter involved in this piece, maybe they could have prodded him. <laughs> what a spirited defense of the, a lot of the sports writer there, Kent. It's Thursday afternoon as we record this, which means just one day left to go online and buy the second Captain Sports Annual and have it shipped anywhere in the world for free. That offer ends tomorrow. That very, very generous offer ends tomorrow, Friday, February 26th. So get on to secondcaptains.com. I thought on of who... who, who who I would want in. Who would want in? Oh, as Ireland's smartest man. Yeah. yeah. I get Big Terry Butcher in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm. He's not the leader we want, but he might be the leader we need, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Carol. Thanks, all. Thanks, Ken. Thanks so much Thank for listening. Care. We're putting another podcast out looking ahead to Ireland versus England. And what else are we talking about today? Carl Frampton's fight. Yeah, we're going to talk to Bernard Dunn about Frampton Quig, which is a huge one for Frampton, the unification title fight. So we'll chat to you soon. Cheers. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 